Tonight's scripture is the passage from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, which has been the key passage for this series that Pastor Doug's been teaching on the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Being assembled together with him, with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But wait for the promise of the Father, he said, which you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but he shall be but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, those of you that were with us during Lent, uh, you remember that we looked at Jesus' final instructions to the disciples in John 15 about abiding and going. And we said that's kind of the heart of the whole Christian life. And then we've spent the Easter season asking, well, what does it mean to go? And so we've looked at what are called the Great Commission texts, the texts in each gospel that lay out from the Lord, okay, this is what I want you to do if you're, if you're on mission for me. And tonight we're going to end that series. And we've noticed uh, in all five of these that there's several things that are the same kind of all the way through it. Um, each one of them has a meeting with Christ. Every time Christ says, I want you to go into the world and witness, uh, there's a promise of the Holy Spirit. There, there are a couple of things that are unique about this last one that I want to draw your attention to tonight. And the main one is the emphasis on the baptism of the Spirit. The emphasis on the need for the baptism of the Spirit. He very clearly says, don't go unless you have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, so what is that? Well, first of all, this is something that Jesus has been talking about for some time. And if we can, we can maybe put the first slide up there and then go back to that one. Uh, if you could put the next one up. Um, John the Baptist says, I have baptized you with water. But he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So when John appears, just before Christ's own baptism, when John appears, he says, okay, I want you to understand something. We are drawing near to the end of an age, the end of a dispensation. Something new is about to break through. This man, this Messiah, is going to usher you into a relationship with the Holy Spirit that's very different than the one you're experiencing right now. And we don't want to downplay that. This is, this is to use modern talk, this is an evolution. This is a movement into another dimension of, of spiritual maturity, a different way of relating to the Holy Spirit, moving from law to spirit. And then if we could go to the John 7 passage, uh, Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
And then John clarifies. He says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we're living at this hinge point in redemptive history. And he's saying that something is about to happen that has never happened before. Don't get ahead of it. Wait for it. And then there's one other text where we see this promise. And behold, Jesus says, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this is the the background uh, of our passage here. Uh, When we get to to this point, they have been in Jerusalem. Uh, They've all come together. You remember, if you've been following along with us, they've been fishing, they've been walking, and somehow Jesus has met them and drawn them all together in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke says in verse 3, To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So somehow they've all kind of gotten straightened out enough to know that they should be in Jerusalem and that something is going to happen, that the Holy Spirit is going to baptize them in some new way, but they're not sure what this all means. And so they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, Now, that was a very reasonable question because what they were thinking was, just as happened in the book of Judges, just as happened with King David, just as happened in the Maccabean Revolt, God is now going to raise up a great military hero and a great army and overthrow the Romans. So they are asking a reasonable question informed by Scripture and informed by how God has worked in the past. So, is this when the army comes now? And and Jesus says, no, uh, it's not. And what I want us to just sit with for a moment is, is where the disciples are at that point in their faith journey with Jesus. They are not aligned with his purpose. They're actually biblically sound and all that good stuff, but their lives are not aligned with the new work of the Spirit that God is about to do. And so they feel confused. They feel stuck. They feel thwarted. They feel uh, afraid because they are in a place where what they think their vision for their life is, is not God's vision for their life. Have you ever been there? Are you there tonight? You're not doing something terribly wrong. You're trying to follow God. You've tried to read Scripture. And as far as you know, This should be what happens next, but it's not happening. It's just not playing out the way that you think it should play out. Maybe you're in a place tonight 
where you're just kind of locked in a clash with God between his vision for your life and your vision for your life. It's not that your vision is bad. It's not what you want is bad. The disciples wanted God to be glorified through Israel. That wasn't bad, but it wasn't God's vision. Is that where you are tonight? Now, there's another way that we can think about this, and that is that the disciples are are living out of a story that is no longer God's story for them. And they're kind of trapped in that story. You know, the stories we tell ourselves about our lives can become prisons. Are you living in the prison of a story that God isn't writing anymore? This is what I'm supposed to do. This is all I can do. I could never. That's kind of where the disciples are, too. Maybe there's one other way to think about it, and I'll throw this out more. If you're on the shepherding team this year, and um, you might, if you're listening to this online, because a lot of us are traveling this weekend, I think churches, including ours, can get stuck right where the disciples are stuck. God, you've always done it like that in the past, and I, I'm just assuming you're going to keep doing it that way. When maybe Jesus wants to do something totally new in a totally different way. And maybe he wants to reimagine the church's ministry, the people's ministry, what it means to be the church by the Spirit in a powerful new way. Are we even open to hearing that? Would we see it if it came? Or would we be so locked into the old story that we miss it? Well, let's see what happens here. And um, by the way, as just kind of an aside, uh, one of the reasons why prophets and apostles are so important in kingdom work is that they are the ones that often see the new way first and help us pioneer it. So the scope of the mission is the same as in the other Great Commission texts. They're supposed to start in their city, go to their region, Samaria, go to a different ethnic group, that would be Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But what's distinctive about this commission is the emphasis on power. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come Upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, there are two main Greek words for power. One is exousia, and one is dunamis. Uh, Exousia means authority. That's not the word used here. And it's used many times in the New Testament, I think 120 times. And here are the three main ways this word is used in the New Testament. First, for supernatural healing or miracles. Um, 
How are such mighty works done by his hands? That's dunamis. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Now, there's a second way it's used. The power Jesus depends on to minister. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And the power of the Lord was present with him to heal. Now, I know this is a little technical, but it's actually very important. Jesus' power does not come from his humanity. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And I know that sounds a little odd because he was God, but even Jesus, the God-man, did not start his ministry until he had 40 days in the desert and the Holy Spirit came upon him. So Jesus, the Son of Man, needed the Holy Spirit to fulfill his ministry. The third usage the power given to disciples to carry on the ministry of Jesus. And he called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So let's kind of put this together, and I know it's just a teeny bit technical, but it's actually a very important point. The supernatural power that Jesus uses to carry out his ministry is given to the disciples so that they too can witness, and that's the same power that's poured out at Pentecost on the church, and it's the same power that we uh, enjoy as believers. Now, I, I took one, DJ, one of the guys on my swim team, to the Avengers uh, last week. And I really liked the Avengers. I think it was like eight hours long. We ate <laughs> way, way too much popcorn. Um, but I love, I just, I don't know, I just think it's silly. I love the concept of Thor having a panic attack. I just think the whole thing is just this crazy, uh, it's a fun genre. But part of the fun of it is you can never be a superhero. Jesus isn't just a superhero. If, if we've read this correctly, the superpower that Jesus used to carry out his ministry was not his humanity. It was the third member of the Trinity. It was the same power that he gives to us after he ascends. That's a pretty big concept. That's a very important concept. We are given the same power Jesus was given to carry out his work in the world. For some reason, I was recommended a while ago this book on African spirituality. I don't know anything about African spirituality. But I felt drawn to read it. I read it. Of course, uh, it, it was about uh, the spiritual experience of a young boy in a tribe in Burkina Faso in the 1950s. Now, obviously, there's many things about that young man's worldview and faith system that are different than my own. 
But I had this odd feeling of being drawn into his world, being attracted to it, because it was so alive with spiritual power. Healings came from spiritual power. Crops came from spiritual power. And I had this odd thing of saying, well, my goodness, that's an odd belief. My goodness, there's something in me that feels more at home in this world than in the world I live in in the West. What's going on here? Now, typically what we do at this point is now those, those primitives, you know, they don't know what we know. We've got technology. We know so much more than they do. We have pills. That's what heals us now. But I'm wondering if we're as smart as we think there are. I think we are. Um, again, in July, we're going to do this series on anxiety. And uh, I'm now in my fourth and final book. I'm reading too much on anxiety. It's making me anxious. Um, and one, one of the things the, the author points out, this, this Matt Haig, Notes on an Anxious Planet, is really a crazy, wild book. But he points out, we have more knowledge now than ever before, more technology than ever before. We can do everything in life faster than ever before. We have more education than ever before. We have a higher standard of living than ever before. However, we have more anxiety and depression than ever before. So could it be <laughs> that our idolatry of technology and speed has left us soulless? Could it be that the indigenous boy in the tribe in Burkina Faso actually has, may understand more about reality than we do in this room tonight? It's made me think. I came across this essay, Why Black Millennials Are Leaving the Church. And this author talks uh, about her, her experience with the church and how it become too political. And so what is she doing now? She's gone back to ancestor worship. She lives in Oakland, California, and, and she finds that she's experiencing God that way. I read another article this week, a 30-year-old who's left a Houston megachurch. It's a beautifully written article. Tragic, grieving the loss of her church. What is she doing now? Ecstasy. That's the whole point of the story. And I kept waiting for the... And now... And it never came. She does ecstasy. What are people looking for? What is she looking for? Dunamis. <laughs> I think not, not just the right doctrine, although that's important. I think she's looking for an experience with God. You know what's growing like crazy in the West right now? Meditation. <laughs> Mysticism. Why? Because people want an experience of dunamis. I think that's where we're headed. So the disciples are told to wait or to tarry. And, you know, you might be in a, in a place similar to that tonight. where Maybe you're in that stuck place or you're wondering, gosh, I've been pushing so hard on this and I think it's supposed to look like this, but God's not giving me what I'm asking. 
or, or maybe you're in leadership somewhere and, and you just are having a hard time to, to reimagine the creative work of the Spirit that God has for you. Or, or maybe you keep knocking on a door. Or maybe you feel imprisoned by a story. Maybe you feel trapped by your circumstances and you're stuck and nothing's breaking through. You're right where the disciples are. Well, what did the disciples do? They were stuck. They were literally stuck. They're not supposed to go anywhere until this crazy baptism of the Spirit thing happens, and they don't know what it is. Well, I don't think I have a slide for this one, but it's Acts 1.14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What do they do? They all get together in a room in Jerusalem, and they pray for the baptism of the Spirit. They pray for the coming of the Spirit. They pray for the fullness of the Spirit. And this is the principles that we see in Scripture. One last slide tonight. We see it in the Old Testament. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You see this pattern? They cried out, the Spirit of the Lord came. They cried out, the Spirit of the Lord came. Luke 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, ask me for the gift of the Spirit. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So there's this, even though this is a unique time in history in Acts 1 and 2 and redemptive history, you see this pattern all through the pages of Scripture that the people of God get to a place of need. They get to a place of powerlessness. They get to a place of being stuck. They get to a place of being imprisoned. They cry out to God for the Spirit. He moves. He delivers them. Historians of revival would say that's exactly what happens in revival. Saturday night before Pentecost, two Saturday nights, June 8th, 7 o'clock, we're going to have this little prayer time. We do it every year, pre-Pentecost prayer. And this year, uh, I think we're going to do something around Acts 114. Don't know what it'll look like. I just think we're going to get together and pray for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got to tell you, my hope is Isaiah forty thirty one that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will renew us as we carry out the callings of God in the world. That they will reimagine. We will reimagine our purposes in the world. We will get out of our stuckness. We will start moving. But I've got two things that I'm aware of, and I'll just say them because you might be aware of them too, that make me not want to do this. There are two mistakes that I've made in applying this principle in the past. And the principle is, if you want more of the power and experience of God in your life, ministry, preaching, whatever it is that you do, ask for it. That's the principle. Here are the two mistakes I've made. One, I let it become legalistic. Isn't this a fine line? How do, you, how do you walk this fine line? Because I got into a place in my life where it was just, I need to pray a little bit more, I need to fast a little bit more, and if I stay up a little bit later, then God must bless me. No, no, that clearly can't be right, right? That's horrible. 
So there must be a way to do this without it becoming legalistic. Maybe it is just something about a hunger for God. If, if I'm in love with my wife, you know, one of my daughters said, what are you doing this weekend? Nothing. We're just together as much as we can possibly be together because that's really all we want to do. Is that legalistic? No. I just would rather sit on the porch with my wife than anything else in the world. So maybe it's that way with God. That the more that we hunger for him, the more that he pours it out. I'll tell you, I've been called to pick up fasting again. I did it for years. Uh, probably over a dozen years I fasted every week. Um, and it just became dry as dust. And I haven't fasted much for for a long time. And I've been asking the Lord, how do you pick this back up and not make it legalistic again? And I'll never forget, a guy at a conference stood up and he said, do you know that the pastors in Korea are praying two hours a day before they start their work? Do you know that Martin Luther, I, I hate this quote, Martin Luther said, I have so much time, so much things to do today that I better pray two hours instead of one. And I just remember sitting in my seat going, oh, I hate Korean pastors. <laughs> They're in revival, and i got to pray two hours a day. This stinks. This is so easy to become legalistic. Let's not, let's not go there. The other mistake I've made is misunderstanding God's presence and power when it comes. Because that's part of this, right? So you pray for more of the power and experience of the Holy Spirit. How do you know when it happens? How do you know your prayer's answered? Too often, honestly, for me, it's feeling. It's emotion. Some of you cry. I feel so much better about myself when you cry. I feel like something happened. But that's not necessarily the mark of the Spirit moving, right? Uh, there's the fruits of the Spirit. There's the character of the Spirit. So you've got to be, this can go off the rails real quickly when you think, if I pray and pray and fast and fast, then everybody will be real emotional in the service and I'll know something happened. Jonathan Edwards in a great book called Religious Affection says, actually, you don't know what happened when everybody's emotional. That could be the devil, that could be God. And he gives other evidences of a distinctive work of the Holy Spirit. So, here's what I want to leave you with. If you are in the place the disciples are in, and you feel stuck, and you are wondering how to align your life with God's vision for your life, and if you are living in a story that has imprisoned you, and you need to reimagine a creative expression of the Spirit in your life, then I encourage you, without being legalistic and without being overly experiential, to ask God for more of his spirit. To ask for the gift of the spirit to help align you with his calling and purposes, to help center you in his will, to help empower you to do the things that you are called to do in the world. Let's pray.